0: Hello there, and welcome to the 100th episode of uh, SBH Bronx Health Talk. This is produced by SBH Health System and uh, broadcast from St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm David Perlstein. I'm the president and CEO at SBH, and uh, I'm very pleased to, to serve as your host for this special edition. I I think that we, we made the right decision, in terms of inviting one of our, our very close friends and someone who's been very important to the hospital and to the community for many years now, uh, and that's Congressman Richie Torres. So welcome, Richie. Very good Dr. to see you.
1: Dr. Pearlstein, it's always a pleasure to be with you, and just thank you for the enormous good that you do for the people of the Bronx.
0: You've been a good friend for many years. When you uh, started out as a, a council member, and uh, we are thrilled to see that you're moving up in the world, still doing phenomenally good things for us. And I'm very lucky to consider you uh, a friend, but also even luckier in a sense that you are representing us and have represented us in, in Washington. And I, I know that it's been a learning curve for you, and it's certainly probably a very difficult time uh, during COVID because uh, I assume that the the practices of Working together have been even more challenging during this time. Uh, considering, I know at the beginning of this, you you were separated quite a bit from from colleagues. So uh, Richie, I'm along with that. What we're going to do today is I just want to to be able to talk to you about some of your ideas and some of your thoughts about what's been happening in in um, in the United States, but also especially in New York and in the Bronx, and and what you what kind of ideas you have. Uh, moving forward in terms of your your new role, and I still consider it a new role as uh, as a representative in in the House. We'll start by just hearing from you and and let us know what you're thinking about these days in terms of the kinds of things that you want to accomplish while you're while you're there. well, you know for me the
1: the root of all evil is racially concentrated poverty. Um, hmm. You know, it's it's often said that the South Bronx is the poorest congressional district in America. It's it's ground zero for racially concentrated poverty. And the social science research is crystal clear that wherever you have heavy concentrations of poverty, you will have worse outcomes in every arena of life, whether it be public health or public safety or housing maintenance or access to transportation and access to food. And we've seen those inequalities manifest themselves, especially during COVID-19 here in the South Bronx. So I see myself on a mission to break the cycle of racially concentrated poverty. Uh, so that the people of the South Bronx have a fighting chance at a decent and dignified life. Uh, that to me should be the central project of the democratic
0: party. That's a big lift, but it's obviously a very important lift. And and you know that from our standpoint, as a hospital and a system that actually uh, tries to keep our community uh, healthy. You know, we are an anchor institution. Yeah. Uh, We're a safety net institution and and we struggle financially, as you know, and you've helped us over the years dealing with that, trying, in fact, to make a difference in people's lives. And yet, you know, the way Medicaid works and the way funding works in hospitals, it doesn't it's not always easy because we we are are getting underpaid uh, for delivering a service. And I believe that is due to kind of long standing uh, inequities that exist in communities such as ours. I, I think that, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I'm pretty sure you are, that, that we only get reimbursed about 65 cents on every dollar we spend on Medicaid patients, and majority of our patients are, are on the Medicaid or or benefit from the Medicaid system, which is a great system. And I'm trying to figure out and what we do next as, as a healthcare organization trying to solve that big nut to ensure that we're where we need to be, which is taking care of our our patients and our community members for a long time to come, while being able to reinvest in the institution in a way that makes our patients feel that we respect them. Because, you know, if I don't have access to capital, I I can't, I can't invest in my infrastructure and my, my buildings and and the places where patients are seen, and I think that becomes a, a cycle, a very negative cycle for our patients, because then they think when they walk into a to a gray kind of building that they're not getting respected the way they should. And that, to me, needs to be corrected. So I was wondering if there's if there's anything on the horizon in D.C. that will lead us towards that equity.
1: Well, you and I share the same diagnosis of the dysfunctional healthcare system. Um, you know, it's it's no secret that our healthcare system is primarily centered around profit rather than people. We have a dysfunctional system where where doctors have a perverse incentive to amputate diabetics rather than actually prevent diabetes uh, in the first place. And and how our system is structured is inexplicable to me. Um, you know, it's all about the payer mix and the healthcare providers who have a higher proportion of commercial insurance, which is code for a higher proportion of rich people, That's it. Are, are the most fiscally sustainable. Um, and it seems to me if we're going to have anything other than a single payer system, at a minimum, there should be a system of equitable reimbursement. You know, why do we reimburse Columbia Presbyterian, which has a much higher volume of commercial insurance at the same rate as we would a safety net hospital like St. Barnabas. And St. Barnabas is in a more challenging position than most hospitals because unlike Columbia, Presbyterian and Mount Sinai and Montefiore, you lack commercial insurance and the revenues that flow from commercial insurance, but also unlike health and hospitals, you lack the, the safety net of public funding. So you have the worst of both worlds, even though you are a critical safety net provider here in the heart part of the South Bronx. So for me, we have to, you know, I'm in favor of Medicare for all. For me, that's the systemic solution to our profit-driven healthcare system. But in the short term, uh, we have to create a system of equitable reimbursement. We have to ensure that safety net hospitals receive much higher reimbursements to compensate for the lack of commercial insurance and to recognize the fact that you serve the populations in greatest need, the uninsured and the underinsured and the poor and the mentally ill and those with serious chronic diseases. And we saw that play out in COVID-19. You know, during COVID, not only did you have a great, greater quantity of cases, but you also had a greater complexity of cases. You had people who were staying in the hospital for much longer periods of time because of pre-existing conditions. And so we need a healthcare system whose reimbursement rates reflect the unique challenges that institutions like St. Barnabas face.
0: Yeah, I think really, really great points. And I will tell you that one of the things that, that I've been thinking a lot of, especially recently, is is how we can double down on our role as an anchor institution. And, you know, we 50 percent of our staff uh, live in the Bronx. We serve millions and millions of members of the Bronx community. We invest in the community in a lot of ways, but I would also argue that there are probably opportunities for us to take it further if we have the ability to. Um, I'll give you an example. There are a lot of a lot of cities now are creating partnerships where they are doing local purchasing. And I think COVID, you know, it exposed a real risk for all of us. And so I've been working with some colleagues to see how we can develop a program such as that that the price of the goods won't necessarily drive how I purchase, but actually the the definition of what the benefit is to the community will. The issue with that again is, is financial, right? I need to make sure that I get subsidized on some level to be able to do that. But think about our ability to create uh, some entrepreneurial spirit in an, and potential in the community if we could actually reinvest in it in that way as well. Not just as, as a healthcare provider, but partnering with the Bronx Zoo or partnering with Fordham or partnering with other large employers to be able to come together and really make a difference. Um, It it goes along with, you know, the wellness center that we built. It goes along with changing how we think about our patients from just being cash cows of discharges, like how do I get paid? I get paid when you get sick. So let's keep everybody sick so I get paid more money. And instead thinking, well, we're spending 18% of our GDP on health. Let's kind of redistribute that in order to make sure that those patients have opportunities to be more resilient, to live more resilient lives, have more opportunity, to have more hope, to think that this is a place that I want to continue to live. Because we also see a lot of people, a lot of immigrant populations come to the Bronx who, who then try to get out. I don't want the Bronx to be a place where you come you know, tentatively because you, because you have to, uh, because you know, there's nowhere else that will take you. And then... To see it as a jumping-off place to find uh, some other, you know, nice place to live. I want the Bronx to be a location, and our certainly all of our. You, look, you you've been living the Bronx your whole life, so certainly our patient population deserve that opportunity to create a life, build a life, live somewhere safe, have access to, to quality foods and build uh, a, a very strong future for their children and their families so you know you i know you've been committed to housing and your whole career and and you understand the problem but it's an expensive problem i mean that's that's my fear you know moving us to a value-based system moving us to keeping people healthy costs a lot of money and even in our wellness center there's no way for us to turn a profit, which we still need to do because we still live in a capitalist society. It's all based on market. That whole thing has to be turned on its on its end, I think. And I was wondering that if, if you had any thoughts and ideas how we could do that, how we could accomplish that in terms of partnering with with others and with you. Well, it seems to me that St. That Barnabas is pioneering a, a
1: new model of healthcare properly and, and broadly understood. You know, I said earlier that I'm on a mission to reduce poverty. For me, poverty is not only about the money in your pocket, it's about the environment in which you live. And it's about the, you know, the social determinants of health. And I and the fact that St. Barnabas was active in creating housing um, is a recognition that the majority of our health is def- is often determined by social conditions outside the healthcare setting. And it's incumbent on healthcare providers to take an interest in those conditions so that we're not simply treating symptoms, we're actually addressing root causes. So for me, we have to imagine a healthcare system where safety net anchor institutions like St. Barnabas are not only healthcare providers but are platforms on which to provide a wider range of public goods, like access to housing, access to fresh food, access to physical fitness. And I'd love to see a world where healthcare providers have development arms that could cross-subsidize their housing operations. So you can kill multiple birds with one stone.
0: Right.
1: So I think that there's a way to create an environment where you can do good and do well at the same time.
0: So one of the things that I find uh, is often a, a kind of a difficulty is the whole idea around uh, competition. Um, you know, most, most hospitals and healthcare systems are competing for the same patient populations in the same pie. And we have a public system, and we have a robust private system, and we have a robust academic system. And and one of the areas that we certainly also saw our risk was during COVID, where independent hospitals such as ours really felt alone. And uh, I would say in the past, the solution was always to force institutions to such as St. Barnabas, institutions that are taking care of, of our patient population, which is primarily Medicaid populations, the safety nets, to join with a wealthier cousin, right? Uh, we, for a while, we were trying to develop a relationship with Montecure. We had conversations with Mount Sinai. The problem is, is that it doesn't necessarily solve the problem of ensuring my patients are receiving culturally competent care in their communities. And I and that's why I would love to also kind of see a world in which I can partner uh, with the the public system comfortably to benefit from some of their skills and, and abilities, because in fact you know I look more like a public system than a mm-hmm. private system yet there are the challenges that exist the political challenges in a city such as new york of of how to to actually get into those systems and create long-term partnerships that don't involve um, a a long-standing bureaucratic you know risk
1: i agree with you. and and
0: and you know we're living in a time of
1: market concentration throughout the american economy including in health care and you know Institutions like St. Barnabas are often this, right? If, if if you're not part of the public system or a larger private system, you're at a competitive disadvantage, especially during COVID, you, you often felt like an afterthought. Yeah. So I would be in favor of figuring out a process by which a hospital like St. Barnabas, if, if it's so desired, could be integrated into the public health system because you serve exactly the same population as Lincoln Hospital, the only difference is that you have far fewer resources at your disposal or less support from the government yeah. and that's arbitrary and we should fix that
0: yeah and i and i would say that that there are opportunities for for relationships to, to be built right there are opportunities for us to to look for for savings even where there are redundant systems in place it just is a really hard thing to do if one doesn't have a, a real guarantee of income, yeah. right? And and I think that that's been something that we have struggled with for a very long time. And you know that recently we did put together a, a safety net coalition in New York City, which I know that you're aware of, and, and it involves a number of other hospital systems in Brooklyn and in Queens and in Yonkers. And And the fact is, is that for the first time we are getting attention because we are not competing with each other for the pie. We're working together to say, look, it's enough already. We need to get the resources to be able to deliver the service that that we need to deliver, uh, which includes not only just the finances of paying for salaries and and, uh, operations, but also reinvesting in organizations to make sure that we have, as I said, respectful facilities. You've got to realize, and I'm I'm not sure if you're aware of this, we have been following what our patient satisfaction scores are for patients who are visiting the the wellness center. It is so much higher. Why? Because even when I walk into that, I feel better. I feel like, oh, this is a very lovely, respectful, calm space. And it's not fair. There is a, a lack of fairness about it. And I think part of it does come from the idea, as you said, that the idea that we we in this country, we're one of the few countries that have not moved towards some sort of like real universal guaranteed health care, preventive health care and, and acute health care. I'm wondering from your standpoint, do you think in D.C. the idea of Medicare for all is something that can or will happen in the next couple of years?
1: The honest truth is that we have a distance to travel uh, before reaching Medicare for all, reaching a genuinely universal healthcare system where your right to healthcare is no longer at the mercy of your employment status. So that's a longer-term project, but you know, at the moment, the highest priority is the build back better Act. Yeah, which which for me would lay the foundation for a care economy that would bring our greater economic security to the most vulnerable and most essential members of our society the elderly the disabled the essential workers families or children and so that that to me is a down payment uh, toward uh, a medicare for all system which would be part of the the care economy that we're creating for the 21st century because COVID-19 has been a rude awakening about the deepest inequalities in our society we saw the intersecting ways in which all of these inequalities combine to create a perfect storm in the South Bronx. right? We saw the digital divide deprive students of their fundamental rights to an education. We saw families who do not have enough in their bank accounts to cover unexpected expenses, face unprecedented levels of housing insecurity and food insecurity, and and face a danger of eviction. Uh, We saw overcrowded apartments become petri dishes for the spread of COVID-19. And we saw high rates of cardiovascular diseases like hypertension and diabetes become the leading risk factors for COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. So all of these inequalities are
0: reinforcing and we have to create a care economy aimed at addressing those inequalities. And so the Build Back Better plan, do you believe, or are you under the impression that, that the Bronx will see a significant investment from that? Is that something that, that we'll be able to expect or you'll be able to drive? We will certainly see. I mean, if if it, we pass the Build Back
1: Better Act in the House, it's about $2 trillion. Right. Uh, so the ball is in the United States Senate. Yep. And one of my frustrations is that it increasingly feels like we no longer live in a democracy. We live under the tyranny of Joe Manchin. Um, but I'm hopeful that in the end we will pass the Build Back Better Act and it's going to bring uh, more resources to the South Bronx than we've seen in a long time. Is it enough? No, but you know, investing $150 billion in affordable housing, investing $200 billion in home care, investing in the expansion of the child tax credit, which cut child poverty by 50%. These are programs that people are gonna feel in their own lives. And, and a personal passion of mine is, is housing. I, I view housing as a form of healthcare. And public housing has been so savagely underfunded that it has a capital need of 40 billion dollars and counting. Right. So there are children have been poisoned by lead in their own homes. There are senior citizens who are living without heat and hot water because their boilers keep breaking down. And the Build Back Better Act includes more than 60 billion dollars to address the humanitarian crisis that has taken hold in public housing. So those are improvements that people are going to see in their lives, and it's going to make a difference.
0: I'm I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful and very thankful that you're actually there advocating for us because it really does make a difference. One of the areas, obviously, that's very important to me as a pediatrician, are uh, the the number of teenagers that we're starting to see uh, victims of of gun violence and and gang violence, and it, that number seems to be increasing. Just from the standpoint of I do get reports every day, and I know what our volume is it's really starting to concern me in terms of what the impact will be on this generation. And and I'm wondering, what do you think the community can do and how can we be part of trying to mitigate the harm that's being done by the acts of violence that are occurring? You know,
1: I see it as one of the greatest challenges confronting the South Bronx because we've seen an outbreak of gun violence and gang violence and youth violence. I mean- Part of the solution lies in cracking down on gun trafficking. Uh, So even though New York State and New York City have among the strictest gun laws in the country, we all know that guns could easily cross state borders, that that, that there's no boundaries when it comes to gun trafficking. And in a rational world, every gun would be licensed and every gun would be registered and safely stored. Every gun owner would be licensed and trained and every gun sale would be subject to a background check. Um, And those are common sense gun reforms that have to be enacted at the federal level. So that's one solution. The second solution lies in investing in our young people. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of young people who don't go to school or don't go to work, whose only existence is life on the streets. And those young people are particularly susceptible to gang recruitment. Uh, And I'm a strong supporter of A Cure Violence, which is a program that reduces violence without over-criminalizing young people. And it recruits violence interrupters who are former gang members, who are trained to reach out to at-risk youth in the hopes of steering them away from gang membership and gang violence. And there's nothing more powerful than face-to-face communication to have someone tell you, don't make the same mistake that I did. You're, You're one mistake, one bullet away from languishing in prison from the rest of your life. You know, the research has shown that that kind of face-to-face outreach could have a real impact in reducing gang membership and gang violence. So more social investment, more gun safety laws would be
0: a way forward. And probably earlier intervention in in all of these as well. So we're not just doing violence intervention. We're doing early on violence prevention. And, And a lot of that comes from giving these kids a sense that they have a future. Right I mean, you know the fact is is that that anybody who's grown up under the shadow of of gunfire is at risk. And I will tell you, what, for years and years, uh, you, know, you know I worked as a a primary care pediatrician in the community for a long time before I took on this role. And what was very hard to watch was to to see, Young, very young kids, very bright eyed, very excited about opportunities. And and we had a program, Reach Out and Read, where we'd give books away, and we still do that to at every visit. And and the way they would glom on and and want to read and want to be read to. And then I would see them when they were ten or eleven. There was a deadness in some of their eyes. And I'm thinking, well, you know, they are facing a chaos that, that personally I never had to face as a child, that, that other patients don't have to face. And I, and I think that, that we just have to find a way to engage the community as well, to take a little more control over what's happening and insist on change. I would love to, again to be an organization that is helping that along. I, I can't push it on folks, but i really wanna be a resource for community members and community organizations. Uh, we're working with BRAG as one of the, you know, the violence interruption groups, but I wanna be there for the community, which again comes down to making sure that we have the resources in this space. We are running programs as part of the violence interruption. Um, in our gym, they're doing boxing programs and exercise programs in order to keep kids busy. But I really do believe the Bronx has got to own it. And we have to make sure that as an organization, as uh, an anchor, and then I would assume you as a, a representative have to make sure that there is are the resources there um, to give every kid an opportunity to become you. And I really think that's that would change the world. And as you know, I'm not interested in gentrifying the Bronx. I'm, I'm interested in creating a new gentry that already is there and giving people the opportunity to, to really build the community in a way that makes them want to continue to reinvest in the community. You know, COVID has just made it really hard. But I, I also don't want to go back to normal, right? I'm not saying that that we should return to a normalcy that was not normal, right? It wasn't fair. I want to use this as an opportunity to transform the community uh, as we know it and really become an organization that the community sees as a friend and, and wants to pull resources from. But to do that, we're going to need Obviously, the resources of New York State, uh, the resources of New York City, and the resources of the federal government to ensure that we are there to be able to to be that support. But I do think there has to be direct investment in these communities, uh, not just through the St. Barnabas's, but actually through local CBOs. And I'm wondering if in the Build Back Better, if that gets through, there is funding for those kinds of things as well, because without that, I, I don't see how we solve this.
1: Look, the, the Build Back Better
0: Act is far from perfect,
1: um, and we're it not for the United States Senate. We're it not for the filibuster. We're it not for Kirsten Center Mansion, Mansion. Uh, we would have had a much larger investment, but, but. We we agree with you. We cannot afford to return to normal. We need transformational change in our society. Hence the name Build Back Better. We're not looking to rebuild. We're looking to build back better. And my view is if we can build back better in the poorest congressional district in America, then we can build back better anywhere. Um, and, and so we're the ultimate laboratory for the kind of transformational change that we all want to see and that we desperately need. And my view is if we can squander $2 trillion on a failed war in Afghanistan, then why can we not invest trillions of dollars in our own people, and our own infrastructure, in our own, not only physical, but social and human infrastructure in our own future? Um, and so the investments that we're beginning to see are long overdue.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And you just have to let us know what we can do to to be part of this to make sure that that we are supporting you in a way that allows you to bring that support back to our community. So again, Richie, it's it's always a pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing our 200th episode uh, when you're in the Senate. So. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's it's a pleasure. I am also looking forward to seeing you in person. It's been a long time, so we got to spend the time. time together. And uh, and uh, there any uh, last words you'd like to to offer, Sbh and the community, this is your opportunity.
1: Well, I want to just relay my condolences to you for the loss of your father. It's it's I I cannot begin to imagine the pain that comes from losing a parent, and I and I say that as someone who loves my mother deeply and yeah. could not imagine life without her. Um, I just want to thank you for your service to the Bronx, and you are an inspiration to me. I mean, you know, your vision of a more just society has always been inspirational to me, and, and, and I agree that poverty in every sense should be radically reduced, not by displacing people from their homes and their communities, but by lifting them up. Uh, that, that's progressive government at its best.
0: Thank you, Richie, and I will let you get back to the business of government. Take care, doctor.